scripture lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Mark. We are going to read from chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, and I invite you to stand for the reading and hearing of the gospel. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pilate has a lot of questions, and he was a man who was used to having his questions answered. He was the governor of the Roman province of Judea. He was in charge of the tax collecting and administrative regime there, and he commanded the troops, which gave teeth to the presence, to the Roman presence in the region. Pilate was unquestionably the most powerful person in Jerusalem. In this scene from our lesson today, he wields the power of life and death. And Pilate has questions. But his questions reveal profound weakness. Pilate was an ambitious and fearful man who, when he was face to face with Jesus, had to ask, then what shall I do with this man? And his answer was terrible. It's a question that we ask too, and we'll ask it with Pilate this morning. What shall I do? The good news today is that we know how to answer this question. Today is Palm Sunday, and churches often mark this day by reading one of the accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover feast. Some churches even incorporate into the worship service some kind of procession that calls to mind the hint of celebration that shows up at this moment in the narratives. It's a scene that is literally out of prophecy and the Psalms, right? There is Jesus riding on a donkey, suggesting and symbolizing a new kind of royal power and peace. And there are these cheering, adoring folks who parade with him and celebrate him by laying palm branches and garments down on the road in front of him as a sign of honor. They are shouting and singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Maybe you've been in a Palm Sunday worship service before that included a procession like this, say, with kids during the first hymn, right? It's cheesy, but in a fun way. A real preseason warm-up for Easter next week. 
It's maybe weird to have a palm, favorite Palm Sunday story, but I've got one. I'm going to share it with you. Um, now, there's a story within a story here, so bear with me. Ten years ago, nearly to the day, we celebrated our son's gotcha day, the day that Elijah came home to live with us for keeps. He was almost two, and he was great. He was sweet, and he was loud, and he was earnest in this kind of hilarious way. Um, so gotcha day was on Friday, and we were so happy to show up for church that Sunday as a family of five, and it was Palm Sunday. Now, that church didn't really have a nursery for toddlers, so he sat right in the pew with us in big church, you know. Our pastor started his sermon by telling about a church that he had pastored before where they had a particularly odd Palm Sunday tradition. This congregation would parade around outside, around the grounds of the church on Palm Sunday. It apparently was this loud and fun spring celebration, and there were instruments, and they were singing. And so the pastor told a story about the time that they managed to make such a ridiculous scene that they disturbed a neighbor. There was this poor soul who lived next door to the church, and he was just trying to sleep in on the weekend. And he barges out onto the porch, half-dressed, and he shouts, Who's making all that racket? And the pastor was telling the story, right? And when he yelled out that question, Who's making all that racket? In the middle of a service where, say, a two-year-old is sitting in his mom's lap, not really paying attention, but he's aware of the room. That two-year-old, without missing a beat, answered him at equal volume, Elijah! (laughs) I mean, he just shouted out the answer to the question like it was obviously the most sensible thing in the world to do right then. Who's making all that racket? Well, it was usually him. And somebody was asking, so he piped right up with the answer. I am. We've been moving through a series that we've called Resurrected, A Heart Prepared for Easter. And in it, we've been looking at how various characters from the Passion Narratives contributed to or responded to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. We've been examining ourselves to see if and how we share some of those same impulses. Sam looked at the Jewish leader's envy, Judas's greed. Michael spoke about Peter's doubt. Weren't they great, by the way? Yeah. Today, as we read earlier, we're going to look at Pilate, and we're going to reflect on ambition along with its twin, fear. But even as we peer into this dark moment, I want you to hold on to the celebration of Palm Sunday. Keep it close. There is something in the sights and the sounds of all that racket that will see us through. When he was face to face with Jesus, Pilate asked a question most of us ask almost every day. What shall I do? The good news is that we know how to answer that question. We're going to divide our treatment of this passage into three parts. First, we're going to look at the orientation of ambition and fear. Second, we're going to consider the impact of ambition and fear. And third, we're going to talk about the transformation of ambition and fear. And then we'll have a few points of uh, application. So first, the orientation 
of ambition and fear. Let's define some terms. When I use the word ambition, I'm not talking about dreams and goals. Um, there's, of course, nothing wrong with having a strong desire to accomplish or achieve something. There's nothing wrong with setting goals for yourself, your family, your team, your company, our church. And there's certainly nothing wrong with working hard, with focus and grit and skill and prayer to reach those goals. Ambition of this kind directs and energizes a lot of good in the world. And it really seems like a necessary ingredient for almost any effort to make or sustain or improve something worthy of our time, beauty, justice, peace, love, joy, home. The ambition we're talking about here is the kind that turns us away from all of that and turns in on itself. This kind of ambition causes us to see specific accomplishments or achievements in some final or ultimate way. The difference here is between ambition as direction and ambition as end. The second kind of ambition centers a self or ourselves in a way that forces us to value this desired version of me, of us, above everything else. That first kind of ambition is a potential source of good. The second kind causes us to believe that the ambition itself is good. Because of this self-absorbing tendency, ambition produces fear. We fear both its lack and its loss. Ambition causes us to feel terrified by the possibility that we might fail to reach or maintain it. That's the kind of ambition we're talking about this morning. Ambition with a flip side of fear. So how do we know that Pilate was an ambitious and fearful man? Interestingly, Pilate is a figure that we know some things about from historical sources other than scripture. We know that he was appointed governor of Judea around the year 26 of the Common Era by Emperor Tiberius. We know that he served in that position for about 10 years. We know that he had a reputation for being particularly brutal in the way that he handled potential challenges to Roman authority. We know that he seems to have really offended Jews near the um, beginning of his tenure in Jerusalem because of the way he made use of the temple and also for confiscating a bunch of temple funds and using them to build his, an aqueduct. We know that there were folks who complained to the emperor about Pilate. And because of all this, we suspect that he may have been on thin ice during at least part of his tenure. Now, we also know that a decade was a fairly lengthy term for a Roman provincial governor, and so from a Roman perspective, he was almost certainly at least fairly capable and somewhat successful. He was pretty good at his job as he understood it. But we don't have to know much about him to know that Pilate craved position, status, wealth, and glory. To have risen to this position in that world, Pilate possessed extraordinary ambition. And we don't have to know him well to know that he feared the loss of all those spoils. We can definitely assume that Pilate was the sort of person who filtered his official decisions through a huge amount of self-regard, self-promotion, and self-preservation. Our best evidence for this is actually buried in our text this morning and in the other gospel accounts of Pilate's actions. See, the Jewish leaders knew about Pilate's insecurity. 
They understood his ambition and fear, and they obviously calibrated their charges against Jesus in a way that hit Pilate in exactly this spot. The specific charges they leveled placed Jesus in defiance of Roman authority. Luke makes explicit that they accused Jesus of trying to forbid Jews from paying taxes to Caesar. John records their interaction with Pilate as having included a not-subtle threat, arguing explicitly that Pilate was no friend of Caesar's if he let Jesus go. That's a real nice governorship you got there, Pontius. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. The gospel writers also agree that Pilate did not believe Jesus was guilty of these charges. He did not believe Jesus was guilty of the charges. In our Mark passage earlier, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus to him. This doubt also explains why Mark and the other gospel writers describe Pilate as being amazed that Jesus wouldn't straightforwardly answer the charges. Pilate was looking for a reason, any reason, to acquit him. He recognizes, Pilate recognizes, something good, something right, something true about Jesus. But he can't act on it. His ambition and his fear had oriented him around a different set of values. Before we look at the impact of that ambition and fear in this passage, let's pause. Ask ourselves, do we sometimes carry this kind of ambition and fear with us? Do we allow our priorities to get scrambled from time to time? Do we sometimes let what we imagine to be good for us replace what we believe is good and right and true about God and God's world and our place in it? Let's look at the impact of ambition and fear. Ambition and fear turn us and orient us inwardly. And we need to add this. That orientation, that turn, is destructive. Because they skew our perspective and sense of value. Ambition and fear cause us to treat others as objects that may be on or in our way. Let's look at how this plays out for Pilate. Remember, He doesn't believe Jesus is guilty. He wants to spare him, but he mostly wants to take care of himself. Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? First, he tries to avoid making a decision. In our passage from Mark, Pilate's encounter with Jesus is very brief, but the other gospel writers include quite a bit more detail. Pilate questions Jesus at length in John's gospel before finally getting frustrated and just completely dismissing him with this famous line, what is truth? Luke tells us that Pilate first sent Jesus away to Herod, who was in town for Passover. So Herod ruled the region of Galilee, right, as a client of the emperor. In a way, he's sort of like Pilate, except that Pilate had a much bigger tax base in Jerusalem, and Pilate had an army. But when Pilate learns that Jesus was a Galilean, he's like, great! He's Herod's problem. Herod, of course, played that game too. We just sent Jesus right back to him. Thanks, it's good to talk to you. When avoidance didn't work and Pilate ultimately issued his judgment, Mark makes clear that he did so 
wishing to satisfy the crowd. Matthew includes the weird detail that Pilate's wife even tried to convince him not to crucify Jesus. Also in Matthew account, Pilate ridiculously tries to distance himself from the thing that he is making happen, right? Matthew 27, 24 says, when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And then of course he ordered this man's execution. That is the impact of ambition and fear, destruction, death. They so warped Pilate's perspective that he willingly made of himself an absurdity of historic proportions and ordered the death of a man he didn't believe was guilty of a crime he didn't believe he committed. Ambition and fear are sin and separation and their impact is destructive. They wreak the same havoc in our lives. They make us turn others into objects, image bearers, into inconveniences. They cause us to turn away from the presence of Jesus in our lives, from the presence of Jesus in all of our lives, to avoid the claims that he makes on us, and to live as if we were ends unto ourselves. John Stott puts it like this, It is easy to condemn Pilate and overlook our own equally devious behavior. Anxious to avoid the pain of a wholehearted commitment to Christ, we too search for convenient subterfuges. We either leave the decision to somebody else or opt for a half-hearted compromise or seek to honor Jesus for the wrong reason, for example, as teacher instead of as Lord, or even make a public affirmation of loyalty while at the same time denying him in our hearts. Do we live like that sometimes? Do we allow ambition and fear to orient our lives around our own ideas of what is right and good? Do our ambition and fear cause us to devalue everything and everyone else outside of that? Then what shall we do? Let's talk about the transformation of ambition and fear because the good news is that we know how to answer that question. Pilate's ambition and fear oriented his view of the world in a way that didn't allow him to see Jesus well even though he was right in front of him. He's right in front of him. Jesus was foreground for Pilate. He was background. He was a sideshow, really. Ambitious and fearful, Pilate just looked around and through someone who was standing right in front of him. Pilate's failure was that he didn't center Jesus. And that's how we answer the question. When we don't know what to do next, when our ambition and fear put us at odds with the claims Jesus makes on our lives, we have to center Jesus. Make him our point of orientation. Focus on following his creative and life-giving way in the world. We have to live like it's Palm Sunday. And we're making a big racket, shouting our hosannas and laying whatever it is we're carrying on the road in front of him. Living as if we're part of that crowd transforms our ambition and fear. It turns our tendency to live unto our own end into a self-giving expression of confidence and courage. Centering Jesus allows us to live out of humility and trust, and it prepares our heart for what happens at Easter. 
I wanna be clear that centering Jesus isn't something we're able to just do by trying harder at it, right? Of course, like anything else in life, years of habit and practice and failure and patience and wisdom make centering Jesus in our hearts and lives maybe easier, less cumbersome, more automatic sometimes, but it's never something that we manage to do on our own. We are sinners. We separate. We seek our own ends over and over and over. Ambition and fear, and for that matter, envy and greed and sometimes doubt turn us in toward ourselves again and again and again. Centering Jesus, living from humility and trust, that is something that Jesus himself empowers. And it's work that he's faithful and able to do. There's this great detail at the end of the Palm Sunday passage in Luke. Some Pharisees are disturbed by the rowdy scene that the disciples are making. And they tell Jesus to get the crowd to knock off all that racket, right? Rebuke your disciples, they tell him. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would shout out. The energy and spirit that can animate the rocks empowers us to live with humility and trust. In his commentary on the passage that we're reading in Mark uh, this morning, N.T. Wright says, when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again the sense of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. We learn and grow into that gratitude by centering Jesus, living a Palm Sunday life, celebrating, honoring, and following Jesus along a hard road that leads into the dark turn of a world bent on its own end. But we're preparing our hearts for Easter. And so let's get some help. We're going to use a piece of a Mary Oliver poem to frame how we think about applying this lesson. I read a lot of Mary Oliver over the winter. Um, Spending time with her intense focus on the minute and the miraculous details of creation was a treat during the cold months. And honestly, um, it was a mercy. Um, I think that her refusal to look away from the harsh and wonderful reality of both the steady constancy and the incredible change that are all around us. Um, her willingness, in fact, to hold all of that near helped me process some of the grief that came with the news of the Swansons' um, plans to leave. In the poem, sometimes, Mary Oliver writes about the experience of being drawn out of the routine and the melancholy between God and death. And it has this great stanza that we're just going to completely reappropriate this morning. It goes like this. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Oliver, of course, has the natural world specifically in mind for her readers. It was a created world for her, to be sure, in one touch with miracle and spirit and renewal and rebirth, but... I'm commending it to you with a pattern of discipleship in mind. Let's use it as a template for living Palm Sunday. I think it can really help us break out of the habits that turn us inward, can help us direct our focus and energy out, can help us center Jesus in our hearts and minds and lives. It can help us live out of the humility and trust that we learn from him. 
I think these instructions can lead us into practices that prepare our hearts for Easter. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Pay attention. You hear that a lot, don't you? Parents and teachers say that a lot. Pay attention. Do we pay attention to what we're saying? Pay. Spend. Hand over. Use up. Attention. Your time, your energy, your focus, it's all you've got. It's not something with a relative value. It's not a commodity that you can resupply in bulk. Your attention is a scarce and precious resource. Pay it out on something worthy. Use it well. Pay attention to the world, to creation, to the rocks that cry out when you keep silent. Pay attention to the people around you, to the joy and the sorrow and the worry and the hope in their hearts that cry out like those rocks if you have ears to hear it. Pay attention to your life in the world, to your moments and your days. Pay attention to your breath. Pay attention to the beat of your heart on Palm Sunday as you center Jesus in your mind, riding by, humble and trusting, humbling and trustworthy, on into what comes next. Pay attention to what comes next. Be astonished. Stick with that word for a minute. We don't use it often. Astonished. Surprised, maybe. Startled, more like. Amazed, yeah. But not like wow, more like yes. There's something of awakened in it too. Maybe even beckoned, and I think changed, convinced, converted. Say yes. Be astonished. Be astonished at the miraculous ways of life in the world. Be astonished at what God has done in your life. Be astonished at the good you see, at the beauty that surrounds you. Now, Ashley reminds me when we were, reminded me when we were reading this poem over the winter that I, I tend to, to go toward the joyous side of astonish, but that we can also be astonished by evil. We can be startled and repelled and say no to that in the world. Be astonished by injustice. Be astonished by destruction and waste and pain. Be astonished by separation and death. Be astonished by the possibility of change. Be astonished by love. Be astonished by sacrifice. Love expressed in sacrifice embodies resurrection. Be astonished by the hope of resurrection. Tell about it. On the soccer field, I'm constantly coaching kids to communicate, talk to each other for the whole team to have a full understanding of what's happening in a game. Your teammates need to know what you see. They need your perspective. Telling about it is how to teammate. Brothers and sisters, the church and the world and your neighbors need to know what you see 
and hear, what you've paid attention to and what astonishes. Bear witness to it. Share the true story of God in the world. Tell about it. The Lord has done some good work in your life. Tell about it. You have known brokenness and hurt. Tell about it. You have known struggle and healing and recovery. Tell about it. Jesus is riding our way. Tell about it. And when your weary neighbor stumbles out to see who is making all that racket, you can answer, I am. We are. Wait till you hear what comes next. Let's pray. Mighty God, help us to recognize when we are living out of ambition and fear. Empower us to live out of humility and trust. Shape our imagination. Clarify our vision so that we will pay attention to where and how you are at work in and around us. Astonish us with your presence. And give us the words to tell about your love. Prepare our hearts for Easter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.